Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Welcome to episode 238 of the Flying Free Podcast. This is part three of a four-part series where I am basically giving you listeners a sneak peek into my upcoming book. The book does not have a title yet, but there are four parts to the book. It's basically the book is my journey, my own spiritual journey from the time I was a small child up until now. And in episode 236, I gave a sneak peek into part one. And in episode 237, I gave a sneak peek into part two. And today, we're going to do sneak peek into part three. So here's the introduction to part three. Which part of me did you like best in part two? I liked Rude. She didn't show up a whole lot during that time period, but wait for it, because she almost pretty much takes over this next one. Rude is my truth teller. In fact, Truth Teller is her real name, but she was labeled rude by everyone around me for so long that I just called her that too, poor thing. Everyone has a truth teller inside of them, and if they want to get away from an abusive relationship or environment or system, they'll need to start listening to their truth teller and giving her the respect she deserves. She may not always say things with tact, but she definitely has good things to say. So even if nobody around you is hearing her, please do yourself a favor and you make an intentional choice to hear her. Okay, I'm not going to read these chapters in order. We're going to skip around a little bit. The chapters are like little vignettes, just like parts one and parts two. But the three chapters that I'm going to read to you are chapters two, three, and 20. So here's chapter two. The domino. Marriage and family are important to God, but just as important to Him are the individuals within those marriages and families. Leslie Vernick, The Emotionally Destructive Marriage. She would scream for hours at a time on an almost daily basis for years. She also hit, kicked, bit, and scratched. Nobody was exempt from her wrath, not even the house. She punched holes in walls and broke chairs, doors, and toys. Until I saw it play out with my own two eyes, I was completely unaware that children could be this dysregulated. The rest of the children were your garden-variety kids with an assortment of personality styles and varying degrees of cooperation. The growing kids God's way way seemed to work fine with them, and it wasn't like I was a new mom with no experience or intuition— I actually love to find patterns, and behavior fascinates me, but I couldn't crack the code on this one. Her babyhood was uneventful. I nursed her the longest of any of my other babies until she was about 15 months old. She was a content baby who ate and slept well and was surrounded by music, talking, reading, and playing due to growing up in an active homeschooling family. When she was one year of age, she contracted scarlet fever and had a lengthy febrile seizure. I thought she had died in my arms. She was blue and lifeless. But by the time the ambulance arrived, she was pinking up and moving slightly. 
I always wondered if something shifted in her tiny body at that point in time. She entered her toddler years and gave new meaning to the terrible twos. I had been through this four times before, and I told myself that everything would work itself out and it would all be okay. We just had to get through it. Potty training was a nightmare, and we were still in the full swing of it when she was old enough to start kindergarten. Because I had been steeped in a religious culture that said psychology was not biblical and therefore false, I avoided exposure to the modern newfangled ideas about child development and insisted on growing kids God's way with the Ezos who had figured out God's exact formula for turning out godly children. And spanking was involved. All of this felt normal to me because I had been raised the same way, and it worked for my four oldest kids in that they mostly followed the family rules and cooperated when we asked them to do or not do something. And wasn't that a sign of good parenting? Another unfortunate belief that had been downloaded into my brain was the idea that the government was out to steal our kids and our freedoms. In my fear of losing the kids to the evil government, and in my belief that if I could just find the right method to help my daughter, all would eventually turn around and there could be peace on earth, I failed to get the help she needed when she was younger. I could do this on my own by the grace of God. But as she grew up, her symptoms only worsened. And when you put her issues together with my issues and John's issues, you had a perfect storm. The day before Easter of 2013, that storm hit. Our daughter had been raging all day, and because I was her target of choice most of the time, I had spent much of the day locked in my room or bathroom. John came home from somewhere and settled in at his computer in the formal dining room that had been turned into his office, so I came out to make dinner knowing that John and this child would keep one another occupied with their collective drama. Am I proud of this? No. But at the time, I didn't have any better solutions. I wasn't strong enough to take her body anywhere other than where she chose to put it. But John was. He could pick her up and bring her downstairs and then come up and lock the door. Lest you imagine our basement was a dark dungeon, it was not. It was well-equipped with toys, a comfy couch, bright lights, and a TV. She could do whatever she wanted down there until she calmed down and no longer presented a danger to the rest of us. But she would rage and scream and try to break down the door, and sometimes she succeeded. We had to put multiple locks on it so just in case she broke one, the others might still do the job. The problem was that John wasn't content to just bring her downstairs. He was a man who liked to control things, most often passive-aggressively, but when it came to this child, he would shove his fingers down her throat to stop the screaming. We could hear her choking and gagging down there, but none of us knew what to do. He would spank her over and over again, telling her that as soon as she stopped screaming, he would stop spanking. To be fair, I tried this once too when John was gone. We had been listening to the screaming and raging for a couple of hours, and I asked my two oldest sons to hold her down so I could spank her. That fiasco ended about 30 minutes later with me bawling and every last one of us exhausted and traumatized. And it didn't work. She never stopped screaming. That was a light bulb moment for me, and I never spanked her again. 
In fact, that was when I decided to stop growing my kids God's way and start growing them in the way I imagined Jesus might grow kids if he were here doing that sort of thing, which I believe he is, by the way, but we'll get to that. So on the night before Easter, she was arguing with John and there was an altercation in his dining room slash office and I didn't go in to check on anything because what was the point? What would happen would happen. I had no control over any of it. I could tell it wasn't good and I hopelessly made dinner with my heart pounding out of my chest. John eventually brought her to the basement where more bad things happened and I don't remember any details. I have blocked so many things from my mind and I wasn't writing specific things down at this point because I still believed it was keeping a record of wrongs. Forgiving and forgetting was second nature to me. What I do remember is the next morning. The kids got up to go to the Easter service and when this child came out of her room, both sides of her face were black and blue. I was horrified, terrified, and livid all at the same time. I brought her to John and demanded to know what he had done to her. He looked at her casually and said, she did that to herself. How? I yelled, my mind reeling with panic and rage. I just put my hands on both sides of her face and she batted her head back and forth between my hands and must have bruised herself. An irrational argument ensued with me trying to convince him that this could not possibly be true from a physics standpoint, but he told me I was stupid and what did I know about physics and what kind of person did he think I was and it was my fault anyway because I couldn't control her. I kept her home from church that day. My rude part screamed at me through my upset stomach, headache, and pounding heart, Your husband physically assaulted your daughter, you freaking idiot. Wake up! And my default brain robotically said, My daughter must have done it to herself. But this time, I knew Rude was right. And this time, I listened. I told John he had to leave, or I would tell the men in our small group at church what he did. So John left for a few days. I called one of the pastor's wives and asked her what I should do. Should I call the police? What if they took our children away? She said, no, that wasn't necessary. Maybe one of the pastors could talk to John about it. Obviously, our family was hurting, and maybe John needed some support and encouragement as the head of our home. I should have just called the damn police, or at least taken pictures, but I wasn't quite there yet, and this woman seemed so sure of herself that I thought I must be doing what I had always been told that I tend to do, making a mountain out of a molehill, being overly dramatic, looking for attention, failing to overlook a wrong done, and instead wallowing in bitterness. I didn't want to be the kind of person who did all of those terrible things, I wanted to be a good Christian woman, and I wanted to be loved, and I didn't want to lose my children. I was scared. I still thought I was responsible to fix everything, and a friend of mine told me about a local counselor who did two-day marriage intensives for $7,500. I had just finished a writing project that brought in about that amount of money, so I decided this was God's answer. I would tell John that he could come back only if he agreed to going to this marriage intensive with me. He agreed, as long as I paid for it, and he came home. We scheduled our intensive, and the bruises faded. But the first domino had already fallen. Chapter 3. 
Marriage Intensive In some marriages, trying harder does not engender a reciprocal response. It has the opposite effect. It feeds the fantasy that the sole purpose of your life is to serve your husband, make him happy, and meet his every need. It feeds his belief of entitlement and his selfishness, and it solidifies his self-deception that it is indeed all about him. Leslie Vernick, The Emotionally Destructive Marriage I had heard about marriage intensives. They were these luxurious getaways, either in the mountains or by the beach, where you would have group sessions, individual sessions, and time alone with your partner to talk about things and enjoy one another in a beautiful setting. And then you would go home and your marriage would be healed. They were expensive, but you can't put a price on an amazing marriage. So when a friend of mine recommended a local counselor who was known for his successful marriage intensives, I knew this was it. This was Custer's last stand. It would be my greatest, most expensive, and last-ditch initiative to fix our marriage. Rosie was convinced this was our miracle moment, the turning point. I was secretly hoping it would be in the mountains. When I called to make the appointment, I found out that this marriage intensive would be two days in the counselor's local office a few miles away in cold, slushy Minnesota. We would have to bring two other couples along with us to observe and offer support. And he wanted $7,500 up front in a money order before he would put us on his schedule. Also, his schedule was full, but he could work us in in two weeks if he didn't take a vacation he was planning. I needed to decide immediately. Something seemed off, and I felt disappointed and somehow betrayed, but I quickly set my heart aside, knowing it was deceitful above all else and who could know it. It didn't matter if the intensive was in an ugly setting, brief and not private. It didn't matter how much it cost. I was just short of being willing to sign my soul over to the devil if only my marriage could be fixed. And this couldn't possibly be a devil if he would actually cancel his vacation just to help us. Plus, miracles can hide in dark places, right? Believe the best, Natalie. We found two couples from church, including a couple who had been in a church small group with us for several years, and the husband, Hiroshi, was now a church deacon. He would go on from here to work with John to help him be nice to me in spite of my intense and sensitive personality. He would also give me a book called Fierce Woman to drive home John's narrative that I was the problem because I had a brain, a voice, and words. And sometimes I had the audacity to use all three of them in spite of not having a penis. I thanked him, read the book, took notes, and then told Hiroshi I could not relate to the woman in the story, but that it was an interesting read. And that was true. The woman in the story was a bitchy pastor's wife who tried to control her quiet, hardworking pastor husband, and eventually she repented and got nicer and wrote a book that played right into the hands of controlling, misogynistic Christian men who had wives who sometimes made a peep about it. Anyway, I got the intensive set up, and John reluctantly drove us there on the first day. He was decidedly not ready to sign his soul over to the devil to save our marriage, or even just to talk about it with a stranger and some supportive and curious onlookers. I think he would have been relieved to just turn around and go back home to research used cars on his computer in peace. And for $7,500, he could even buy one. But this horse was out of the gate and galloping down the racetrack, and there was no stopping it now. 
For the first couple of hours in the counselor's office, we heard all about the counselor, his practice, his trips, his wild success in saving marriages, and his lovely daughters who looked hot in their stilettos. And would we like to see a picture? Eventually, we got down to business, only interrupted here and there with related anecdotes as well as some speaking in tongues. By recording the time of his stories in the margins of my notebook, I calculated that about $2,500 of my investment was spent on getting to know the counselor. When we did focus on our issues, I learned that 25% of my pain was because of how John had betrayed me, 25% was because of how I betrayed him, 25% was because of how I betrayed myself, and 25% was because of how I betrayed God. I took good notes. So basically, I was responsible for 75% of my pain. That was supposed to make me feel empowered. The key to solving our marriage issues, I learned, was intimate friendship, amazing grace, and extravagant love. And all three of these would, in turn, give us the added bonus of hot, erotic, orgasmic sex. He wasn't wrong, and I was all in, but that wasn't the problem. So I tried to tell him again what I perceived the problem to be. At that point, the counselor told both of us to stand up and face one another. Then he told me to put my hands around John's neck and look at him like I wanted to kill him. I was following all of the instructions perfectly because I still believed that's how you make things work, and I really needed this to work. But even as I obeyed these strange instructions, I felt my brain exploding with the insanity of this request. What was he trying to prove? The counselor took a picture of me strangling my husband like a deranged killer, and then he showed the picture to us. John gave a sad, knowing nod. I burst into body-racking sobs. The only thing I could think is, this is what John has been telling me for 21 years. Every time I point out something hurtful that he does, he tells me I am a horrible person, that I'm stupid, I'm mean, I bring nothing to the table but trouble, I'm a terrible daughter, wife, mother, and friend. It's true that I have wished he was dead a time or 3,495, but I'd never kill him. I was just hoping he'd die of natural causes so I could find some relief. I really am a selfish wreck, and how can anyone stand to be within three feet of me? I don't remember what anyone said or did while I sat there crying and shaking, but when I had calmed down enough, I asked timidly through my snot, is there any chance that you could take a picture of John doing that to me? Because that's why I set up this intensive, so that John might see how he's hurting me for a change and maybe even want to stop. But instead, this is getting all turned around again, and we are examining how my very existence is somehow victimizing John. I don't think I can keep doing this if you're going to enable John to continue to deny, minimize, and justify how he hurts me. I was scared to cross this professional counselor, but if there was any time to speak up, now was it. The miracle would require me to speak my experience no matter what. The counselor agreed, and we set the scene up again with John putting his hands around my neck. The counselor snapped the picture Everyone looked at it briefly without any comment, and then we moved on to the next story. I got the message loud and clear. 
What John did to me was irrelevant and, in fact, would always be turned around to be my responsibility somehow. If I chose to react, that reaction would be the new focus. And my reactions would then become the reasons why John mistreated me in the first place. It would always and forever come back to me. But I had shut down at that point and don't remember much of anything after that. I do remember going into a workout room where the counselor told me to pretend a punching bag was first John and then my mother, and I should say whatever I wanted to it while punching it. I said I didn't want to punch it, and I had nothing to say to a punching bag. I didn't want to pretend it was my mother, my husband, or anything other than what it was. But he insisted I had to do this. It was part of the transformation process. I still wanted the miracle, although I was pretty sure by now this was another dead end. But just in case, I cooperated by pretending to be angry at the punching bag so the counselor would think that I had obeyed him and would make the exercise stop. Then we went back for more prayer and speaking in tongues. I pretended I was okay with all of it, but every cell in my body was aching to get away. This is going to change your marriage. You can do it. This is the miracle you've been waiting for. It will be worth it. Just wait and see. Those are the thoughts that made me stay. Thanks a lot, Rosie. There was one incredibly healing thing that happened there. I had shared a haunting dream I'd had a few years prior to this, and I told the counselor how I could not seem to shake the feeling of foreboding and terror it still invoked in me whenever the memory of it skirted across my mind. In the dream, I was hoodwinked into going into an empty football stadium where everyone I had ever known had gathered to kill me. I had always suspected that I was unworthy of life, and the dream let me in on the secret surprise that I had truly been hated all along. The counselor had me close my eyes and retell the dream in as much detail as possible, only this time he had me look for Jesus. Where was Jesus in this dream? It was not hard for me to find him. When I got to the part where everyone started laughing and throwing rocks at me, the entire stadium melted away and got quiet. I was in a wide open field, a field of grace, and Jesus was there, smiling at me with kindness, compassion, and total love. He wasn't loving me because he had to. He was loving me because somehow, in that moment, I was lovable. I never again was haunted by that dream. I could recall it without any emotion other than gratefulness that Jesus had me no matter what. In this world, I could be hated and killed, but in the real world, I was loved and held. Always. Now, I'm not super woo-woo, I think my mom inoculated me to that with her scorn for anything emotional, and I'm not sure if that's a plus or not, but I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God gave that dream to me and even used a narcissistic counselor to prepare me for what was to come. The week after the intensive was over, we got a request to write a review about the outcome of our marriage intensive. John had been in a good mood and on his best behavior that week, and I was invested in believing the miracle had occurred because the alternative was unthinkable. So I wrote a glowing review and pressed the send button. Yeah, I should have waited just three more weeks. Is this content resonating with you? I've written a book for women of faith in destructive relationships called Is It Me? 
Making Sense of Your Confusing Marriage, A Christian Woman's Guide to Hidden Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. You can read reviews and find out more about my book on Amazon.com. It comes in paperback, Kindle, and Audible formats. I've also created a companion workbook for Is It Me, also available on Amazon. This workbook is like 11 power-packed therapy sessions to help you process through the important material you'll be learning from my book. These books are recommended by counselors and therapists all over the United States. I've also got a website specifically focused on helping women of faith find hope and healing. It's called flyingfreenow.com. And I'd love to give you the first chapter of my book and the first chapter of the companion workbook for free when you hop on my mailing list at the top of my website. Those two resources are going to help you figure out if your relationship is normal or destructive. Now, let's get back to our episode. Chapter 20, Another Hotel Room. A life-saving divorce is a way for a wife or husband to leave a destructive marriage when their spouse has repeatedly betrayed them by breaking their vows to love, honor, and cherish. Those who treat their spouse like the enemy or like a slave to their whims, rather than like a partner through life's ups and downs, are not safe to remain married to. A life-saving divorce happens when every stone has been turned and every effort has been expended. The tipping point is when some incident, great or small, makes you realize there is no rational reason to believe your spouse will ever change. Gretchen Baskerville, The Life-Saving Divorce On April 1, 2016, I checked into another hotel. This time, I was alone and armed with 24 journals I had kept throughout the course of my marriage. I was going to spend the next 48 hours listening to that woman I was, and then I was going to make a final decision about whether or not I should file for divorce. I played instrumental music on Spotify and began reading. When I came to something I believed was significant, I wrote it out in a document along with my thoughts. As I read, I noticed little patterns showing up. And then I noticed big patterns, not just in my relationship with my husband, but in my relationships with my family of origin and some of my church friends. I observed what happened, what I made it mean, how it made me feel, and how I subsequently responded. And I saw clearly how these same cycles repeated themselves over and over again, creating a never-ending loop I would never be able to escape unless I interrupted it. I also completed an exercise where I imagined what divorcing John might be like the first year and then five and ten years later, and here's what I wrote. The first year would be horrible. Everyone would suffer, especially the kids. People would probably call me and send emails telling me I was making a mistake. I would have to deal with John's vilification and potential meanness as we sorted through the divorce proceedings and settlements. It would be awkward and painful, a lot of grief, a lot of crying, a lot of loneliness, a feeling of desolation and failure. I would grieve for the kids and the loss of the family I tried so hard to build and had such high hopes and dreams for. Things would settle down then and we'd all find our new normal. I would get family therapy for the kids and we'd work through it we'd get stronger. We would heal eventually. I would not have the freedom to save money and update our home in the areas it desperately needs. We would go back to pinching pennies for a while. 
I would find a few people here and there who would support me and help me with house stuff. Maybe I'd have to move. In five years, I would look back on all of this like a bad dream. I would be happy that I finally went through with it, and I would wonder why I waited for so long. I might grieve the lost years of trying. I might be remarried to a healthy man and discover what marriage was intended to be. My kids would be able to see it too and might have a better chance of recognizing and marrying a healthy partner. In 10 years, I would have sold my soap business and be working full-time as a writer and life coach, fully able to support myself and give generously to others, including helping my kids go through college and discover their own life goals. I would be happy and free. I also wrote down what my life would look like if I stayed with John. I would have continued emotional turmoil, frustration, and confusion. I would continue to live with foggy thinking, lack of focus, and feeling off balance. I would continue to deal with gaslighting and no resolution of anything, ever. I would have no hope of anything changing or being different, and I would continue to deal with suicidal ideation. Basically, all I see one year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, and all the way up to my death is darkness and sorrow. On April 3rd, before I checked out, I fell on my knees on that hotel room floor and promised the Creator that I would do what I knew He had been waiting for me to do all along. I would do it for the girl who never deserved to be treated that way, and I would do it for her Creator who also never intended for her to be treated that way. And I would never look back. I was going to divorce John's ass. Hey, beautiful butterfly. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and then consider leaving a rating and review so others can find us. To connect with me and get a free chapter of my book, head over to flyingfreenow.com. And until next time, fly free.